Okay, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. We are in John chapter 3, our last sermon in John 3. <coughs> if you are using the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, that's in page 888. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you are certainly welcome to take that Bible home with you. Read it. Now, if you weren't here for last week's sermon, uh, you might be a little lost for this week's sermon. The two kind of go together. So let me, let me begin by doing <clears throat> a brief review of what we saw last week. Uh, last week, we saw that as John chapter 3 is kind of coming to a close, uh, the stage is set for a prophetic war of sorts between Jesus and John the Baptist. <clears throat> the disciples of John the Baptist heard that Jesus' ministry was really taken off. Uh, there was a lot of repentance, a lot of baptism, and that made them nervous. They got territorial, you know, they had a competitive spirit about the whole thing. So the disciples of John the Baptist approached John, <clears throat> like, John, aren't you worried about this? I mean, you're John uh, the Baptist. He's kind of stealing your whole thing here. And John replied, no, I'm, I'm not worried about it at all. Actually, I'm really excited. I'm overjoyed. And he, he gave his disciples <clears throat> a fourfold argument as to why he would not engage in competition with Jesus and his ministry. And uh, those were the four points of last week's sermon. You remember? The first was the theological argument, right? Jesus is, you know, he's the Messiah. Second, experiential. I've already told you guys this. I told you this is how things were going to happen. Were you, were you not paying attention when I said it the first five times? Then the parabolic argument, right? Remember Jesus gave a parable? Uh, John gave a parable. He said, I'm like the best man at the wedding. What kind of best man would I be if at the wedding I'm jealous of the bridegroom? And then finally, he summed it all up with a proverbial argument. He says, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. That's just the way history is going to unfold. Jesus is the Messiah, the eternal Logos, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the King of heaven and earth. I will decrease. He will increase. In last week's text, John gave his disciples the facts. In this morning's text, John is going to give his disciples the why. He's going to explain why all of what he just said is true. That's what we're going to read about for ourselves. So join me in reading, follow along as I read John chapter 3 verses 31 through 36. He who comes from above, and that's Jesus, is above all. He who is of the earth, that's John the Baptist, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of truth. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, our prayer this morning, our desperate prayer, is that every single person in this room would call you true and set their seal to your word, that they would see life and that they would be removed from the wrath of God. So help me, help me to communicate in such a way that can accommodate that. And Lord, I pray that during this whole sermon, your spirit would be alive and at work in the hearts of every single person in this room, enabling us, empowering us to see and to hear your word by faith. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I've got three points for you in this morning's sermon. <clears throat> Note takers, here they are. And by the way, these are the three arguments that John the Baptist is offering of, as to why Jesus must increase. So point number one, because of where he's from. Point number two, because of what he says. And then point number three, uh, because of who he is, where he's from, what he says, and who he is. 
So, <clears throat> point number one, where he's from. Uh, we human beings, we have a strange tendency to find pride in things that honestly don't merit any pride, right? So the guy with like really big calves is really proud, you know, he's wearing shorts, so it's like February and he's still wearing the shorts trying to show off. But anybody who knows anything about genetics and bodybuilding knows that when it comes to calves, you either got them or you don't, right? I don't got them, all right? No matter what I do. The great comedian Norm Macdonald once noted how it's a strange thing to be proud of the way you were born. And yet, every, country, uh, every June in our country, uh, the nation is awash with LGBT pride, which is interesting because most people in the LGBT community would say that they were born that way. And yet, they use the language of pride to refer to their existence. We can feel a tremendous sense of pride about where we're from, right? We're all proud to be Americans, right? Cohen, play Lee Greenwood. Yeah, I knew that wouldn't land with everybody. It's not wrong to be proud of where you're from, especially if where you're from is someplace that's worked really hard to be a really great place to live and visit. So like locally, I think about the city of Chattanooga. And I think about all the work that that city has done to be like a destination spot, to be a place where people want to live and visit and, you know... I think, wow, good for you. You've done such a good job. People from Chattanooga should be proud to live in that city. But most of us are proud of where we're from because, well, we don't really know why we're proud. You just, we, we know that we're from there and we're proud. In this morning's text, we see that John the Baptist's origin story, where he's from, is not a point of pride, but rather a point of humility. Look at verse 31. Referring to Jesus, he says, he who comes from heaven is above all, and he who is of the earth, and he's contrasting Jesus with himself here, that's me, I'm from the earth. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, right? So Jesus from heaven, John from the earth, and what John is telling his disciples here is, listen, I have no reason to, to be proud. There's, there's no way that I can possibly compete with with Jesus. He says, this at, he says this in one way or another three different times in this morning's text. Jesus is from above. He's from heaven. He has been sent by the Father. Well, where did the Father send him from? From heaven. Now, why does it matter that Jesus is from heaven? Well, John tells us it's because if he's from above, then he is above all. You see that right at the beginning of the text in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. That's John's logic. So most of us are proud of our city or our state or our country. You know, we have this feeling like my place is better than your place. I feel that. I tell people all the time, North Alabama's the best. Right? Amen. And like, hey, don't come here. You'll ruin it. Right? We love Alabama. But here's the thing, okay? We're all from earth. None of us are from heaven. But Jesus is, which means that when it comes to competition, who's going to increase and who's going to decrease? There is no competition. Jesus must increase because he's above all. Now, remember why John is saying this, right? He's teaching his disciples why he won't engage in competition with Jesus. And, and so I think that this is a very practical teaching for us in the church. This teaching can adjust the mindset of those who are tempted to compete with Jesus. And we saw last week, that's John's, John's disciples, but that's also you and me, and that's Sixth Avenue Community Church. We can be prone to engage in all kinds of unchristian and non-gospel competition. So, in order to instill a sense of gospel humility in us this morning, I want us to take a moment and just meditate even more on what it means that we are of the earth. In order to do that, we're going to look at two different places in Scripture. First, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> we're going to look at verses 47 through 49. <clears throat> 
The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now what Paul is saying here is, hey, we're all, we're all descended from Adam. And a- Adam is a man of dust. He fell in sin. He's, there's, there's a whole lot of stuff loaded into what Paul is saying here. But what I find interesting is that Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians the same thing that John the Baptist is doing in John chapter 3. He says that human beings... Even apostles, even prophets, even John the Baptist, the greatest man ever born to a woman, all of us are of the earth. We are all of dust. We're all descended from Adam, which means we are lowly creatures. According to God, we're going to return to dust. We read in Ecclesiastes 3.20, all go to the same place. All come from the dust and all return to to the dust. We're lowly, we're weak, we're sinful. Now that's not the last word on the matter. It's not even the first word on the matter. The first word of the matter is that God created us to be glorious, to to bear his image, to be his representatives. Sin ruined that. But even sin isn't the last word. We read a little bit there at the end of 1 Corinthians uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 49 about how Christ is going to come and turn the men of dust into men of glory. Praise God. We look forward to that day. But that's a different sermon. For today, I want you to feel the weight of humility that says, even though I am created in the image of God, I'm still of this earth. Even though God may have given me a gift to use for his glory in the church, maybe he's bestowed a ministry upon me, even if that's true, I am still of the earth. I am still a descendant of Adam. I am infinitesimally small and weak and ignorant in comparison with Jesus, who is from heaven. Now, the second place I want us to turn is back to John chapter 3. So let's go back there. First, go back and look at verse 31 again. Right? I just want you to see the language here. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth. That's literally, he who is of the earth is of the earth. Okay, now look back at, uh, in, stay in John chapter 3. Look at, uh, at verse 6 in John 3. You remember, this is Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. We were here a few weeks ago. And look what Jesus says to Nicodemus. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And literally, that is, uh, he who is of the flesh is flesh. Okay. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You see what I'm doing here? You see the contrast? John is kind of doing the same thing that he was doing, uh, that Jesus was doing when he was talking to Nicodemus. There's a sort of flesh, earthly, dusty contrast with spiritual, heavenly, godly thing that's happening here. And that's exactly what he's telling his disciples. So what does it mean to be of the earth? Well, it means the same thing that it meant to Nicodemus. It means that we can't give life to ourselves. We can't give life to anyone else, to anyone else, right? This is why John the Baptist has to be so humble towards Jesus when his disciples try to pit their ministries against one another. John knows that because he is of the earth, he cannot give the things of heaven, He cannot give life. Only Jesus can do that. Point number two. What Jesus says. On July 2nd, 2010, Alex Malarkey published a book. Sorry, let me pause on that name for a second. Yes, that's his name. No, I can't make this up. Alex Malarkey published uh, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. Right? This is a book that supposedly documented his experience in heaven as a six-year-old after he had a terrifying accident that led to his near death. He supposedly went to heaven, saw Jesus, talked to him. Then he uh, came back and got a book deal, you know. And uh, this is not the only book of its kind. It seems like 
every time you turn around, someone is falling off of a ladder, meeting Jesus, coming back to life, and then signing a deal with Penguin Random House Publishing, okay? You have uh, other authors who have done the same thing. Don Piper, not to be confused with John Piper, uh, made millions off of his bestseller, 90 Minutes in Heaven. Uh, Todd Burpo sold even more copies of Heaven is for Real, telling the tale of his own time in the celestial city, sold in many supposedly upstanding Christian bookstores. Now, as you can imagine, uh, each of these authors have had their fair share of critics. Uh, Alex Malarkey is unique among them in the way that he has responded to those critics. Listen to his words, issued in a public statement. I did not die. I did not go to heaven. When I made the claims that I made, I had never read the Bible. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from my lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. Those who market these materials must be called to repent and hold the Bible as it truly is, which is enough. In Christ, Alex Malarkey. Wow, praise God, right? Praise God for that. Burpo, Malarkey, Piper, Don, not John. These are not the only people who have claimed to have been to heaven, right? Many people make similar claims. Fortunately, most of them can't get a good ghostwriter and a book deal, so we just don't hear about it. Now, I think most of us in this room would be suspicious of these accounts, and we would probably not trust anyone who comes and says, like, yeah, I just talked to Jesus, and now I've got to tell you something. But what if Jesus himself came down and spoke to us about heaven? Would you trust his word? John's second argument to his disciples in this morning's text is precisely this. Because Jesus is from heaven, we can trust his word. Because Jesus is from heaven, he doesn't speak to us through any mediator. He comes down and he tells us exactly what heaven is like, what God is like, and what he wants from us. John says that Jesus bears witness to what he's seen and heard. Go back to the text. Verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. And here, John's just trying to, you know, like, this is what he's experienced. It's not specifically sight and specifically what he can hear with his ears. Yet no one receives his testimony. Right? The language here of bearing witness and, and, and giving testimony, it's not hard to understand. Let's say you're out here and there's a big accident on 6th Avenue and, and you see it all and, and then the police come out and the ambulance come out and once they've kind of got everything cleaned up and they got everybody shipped off to the hospital and they've gotten all the insurance information, they might look around and say like, hey, who, who was here? Who saw the accident? You'd raise your hand and they'd say, hey, come Tell us about it, right? Like, we need your testimony. We need you to be witnesses to what has occurred here. John the Baptist says that's what Jesus is doing about God in heaven. He's there. He knows it all, right? And then not only that, but it says that God the Father sent God the Son. Right? God the Father sent God the Son to specifically tell us these things. So Jesus is not like Alex Malarkey or Todd Burpo, you know. He is actually from heaven. Not only is he from heaven, he is the creator of heaven. He is the Lord of heaven. He is uber qualified to tell us everything that we need to know about heaven and the God of heaven. But now look at the second half of verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. As I was studying the text this week, I felt like this, this rationale that John employs here to his disciples, it kind of came out of left field uh, for me. I mean, it seems like if I was just tracking with John's logic, he goes, Jesus is from heaven, therefore when he speaks, he speaks in a qualified way about heaven. He speaks the words of heaven. I'd be like, yeah, tracking, got it. I probably don't need a second argument. But there is more to the argument. John says four. 
right? We all know what the four is there for, right? It's like in light of what I just said, this is true. So this is part of his reasoning, part of his rationale for why Jesus can speak the words of heaven. And that reasoning, that rationale is because he receives the Spirit without measure. Hmm. Uh, We've talked about this before, but you know, to repeat myself is no burden for me and it's beneficial for you. So let's just do a little theology refresh of how the Father, Son, and the Spirit work together uh, to do us good. So you can see this all throughout the Bible. Um, But before I kind of run through that, let me give the note takers in the room just kind of like a little thesis statement here for the point that I'm about to make in, in point two. God the Father does all things through God the Son, by the power of God the Spirit. God the Father does all things through God the Son, by the power of God the Spirit. So with creation, for example, you see that God the Father speaks. And when he speaks, God the Son is present as his word, the eternal logos. We saw that at the very beginning of John's Gospel. We also know from Genesis that the Spirit is there, present, active, and working, you know, hovering over the face of the waters. How does that all work? I don't know, you know? I don't even know how to change a doorknob. I'm not going to try to explain to you the mechanics of, you know, Trinitarian creation in Genesis 1, but they're all there. God the Father is speaking. God the Son is working. The Holy Spirit is empowering it all. You see this in salvation. The Father elects and predestines. The Son comes and dies to purchase the elect. And then the Spirit applies the work of redemption. You see this with prayer. The normal pattern of prayer is that we pray to God the Father through God the Son by the power of the Spirit that lives in us. And we see the same kind of thing in this morning's text. God the Father is communicating to a lost and dying world through God his Son and that which enables Jesus to communicate to us is the Spirit or he who enables Jesus to communicate to us is the Spirit. Now let's get a little more specific. No one can speak the things of God except for those who are carried along by the Spirit. If you're like, man, Sean, that's a really pithy way to put that. You're really clever. Well, I, I, that's just Second Peter. Second Peter 121. For no prophecy, and remember, prophecy is communicating the word of God. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. We, we just can't do it. It's not possible. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this the case? Why must someone be carried along by the Spirit if they are going to communicate God's Word? Well, the Apostle Paul explains in 1 Corinthians. Turn there with me to chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul asks, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Okay, so the reason why we need to be carried along by the spirit in order to speak the word of God is because only the spirit of God knows the mind of God, right? God's word comes from God's mind. And in our natural state, we don't have access to God's mind. We're dead in sin. We're separated from God. The only thing that our spirit can access is the contents of our mind, which, you know, is worthless, right? So, if we want to be able to communicate God's word, you need to have access to God's mind, and that can only happen with God's spirit, And when that happens, ah, then there is the possibility of communicating God's word. Now, uh, we're getting a little carried away here. I don't want you guys to feel like you're sitting in a theology lecture. Um, Let's get back to Jesus. Here's why this matters. Jesus speaks the word of God not only because he is from heaven, 
but also because he has the Spirit. The only reason that Jesus can speak the Word of God is because he has the Spirit of God, which knows the mind of God. But there's a problem. Because we know the rest of our Bibles, and we know that, well, we all have the Spirit. If we're Christians, right? You have the Spirit, I have the Spirit. According to Peter, all the prophets had the Spirit in some way, which means that so did John the Baptist. So there's a sense in which we're all empowered to speak God's Word. Now that's a problem because this morning's text is all about how Jesus is superior to John the Baptist and every other person of this earth for that matter, and how his speech, Jesus' speech, is superior to John's speech. So what's the difference between John's speech, which verse 31 says is an earthly speech, and Jesus' speech, which is a heavenly speech, even though they are both empowered by the same Spirit? Well, the answer is right there at the end of verse 34. Go back to John chapter 3. Right at the end of verse 34, it says, For he gives the Spirit without measure. Without measure. The way that Jesus speaks the Word of God is different than how John the Baptist or the apostles or even we speak the Word of God because Jesus receives the Spirit of God without measure. Now, if you're really paying attention... Right? If you really got your thinking caps on, maybe you're taking a little bit of biblical Greek, you know that this phrase, without measure here, it means cannot be measured. Thanks. I'll take a pity laugh. Cannot be measured. What does that mean? Well, just think about your own salvation for a second. I'll use myself as an example, and then you can plug in the data for yourself. I got saved when I was 18. I received the Spirit at the moment of my salvation. I'm 34 years old now. You can measure that, right? That's 40 million metric tons of the Spirit that I've received since my salvation. No, I don't, I don't know exactly how to measure it, but I know that there's a sense in which because I was once dead in sin and didn't have the Spirit of Christ, and now I'm alive in Christ and I do, there's a sense in which the way that I receive the Spirit can be measured. It's measurable. But that's not true of Jesus. According to Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus has eternally existed as the manifestation, the manifestation of the glory of the Father. He is co-eternal with the Father. Now listen, I don't understand the mystery of how this works in eternity's past, but I know that the Father has been loving the Son and pouring out the Spirit into the Son for all of eternity. And that means that it's immeasurable. You know, you just try to wrap your mind around eternity. You can't really do it. It, 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 it causes us to think about time in such a way that doesn't make sense to the way that our brains think about time. And that's the point. You can't measure the way that Jesus receives the Spirit from the Father in time, or by weight, or in volume, or in anything else. Now, I feel like I'm this close to stumbling into some kind of Trinitarian heresy. So, let me just summarize it by saying this. The point is, in whatever way that Jesus partakes of the Spirit of God, however he does that, he has been doing that for all of eternity, and will continue to do that forever and ever such that the Father's giving of the Spirit to the Son is immeasurable. Okay, now that's a lot. That was kind of dense for point number two in a sermon. I've got a whole other point to go, right? Does everybody feel like a theologian now? Everybody going to go home and read some obscure, dead Dutch guy on the Trinity after this? The aim of this morning's teaching uh, is not information acquisition, and I would be sad for you, for you if it was. I'm not a systematics professor. The aim of this information for John's disciples and for us is, is holiness. It's sanctification. It's, it's to grow more in Christ's likeness. So let's remember why John is telling his disciples this. He's trying to show them why it is that Jesus must increase and why he must decrease. 
What John is saying here is, I can't be in competition with Jesus and his ministry because Jesus is from heaven, and he speaks the words of heaven. And even though I'm a prophet, even though I am the forerunner, the one who was sent to prepare the way for Jesus, the words that I speak are inferior to Jesus' word. Okay, but what do I mean by inferior? Because now that could be taken the wrong way. We could be bumping into another kind of theological error. It could sound like I'm trying to pit the words of a prophet against the words of Jesus, like so many progressive theologians who try to pit the Apostle Paul and his words and, and Jesus and his words in the gospel. That, that's not what I'm doing this morning. Uh, just to be clear, when John speaks the word of God or any prophet or any apostle speaks the word of God, he's speaking the same word as Jesus. So what do I mean when I say that John's word is in inferior. Well, here's what I mean. I'm referring to an inferiority of degree. So rather than trying to do a whole bunch of really boring stuff to try to show you that, uh, let me just give you a thought experiment, okay? Imagine with me for a moment uh, that you're in grad school. Some of you won't have to imagine that. Imagine that you're in grad school and imagine that for whatever reason you are just utterly fascinated with Japan. You just love that part of the world. You always have, you've always been drawn to it, you don't know why, but you just love Japan. You've been watching all the anime, right, that comes out of Japan, and you've been learning the language, trying to anyways, it's really difficult. Maybe you've been thinking, ah, that's where I'll go and be a missionary. I've been thinking about missions, I'll go to Japan. And you're just really intrigued by that part of the world. You've never been, but you really want to go, like you really want to go. Now, let's say that you have an opportunity to learn about Japan by talking to one of two different people. Can't talk to both. One of two different people. Here are the two choices. The first is a native of Tokyo, right? He was born in Japan. He grew up in Japan. He's been all around Japan. He still lives in Japan. He knows the culture. He knows the language. Everything you could ever want, he could tell you that firsthand knowledge, the second person is a friend of this Tokyo native, right? He's never actually been to Tokyo himself, but he's good friends with a guy who has been there. And you know what? He's a really good listener. And he's a really good note taker. And he's a really good communicator. And he's had long talks with his buddy about Tokyo. He really feels like he understands the place, right? He, even in his notebook, there's sketches and all kinds of stuff. He really knows a lot about Tokyo. Now, the first person would even look at the second person and say, yeah, he's never been, but he's pretty qualified to tell you about where I'm from. Yeah, you can listen to him. Okay, now back to you. You're the Japan-obsessed nerd in grad school. Let's say you get a chance to spend the day with one of these two people and ask them all the questions you could ever want to ask about Japan. Uh, who are you going to choose? Whose word would you consider to be superior? That's John's point, right? That's, that's the point John is trying to draw. Obviously, you're going to talk to the one who's actually been there, who's from there, who has all the firsthand knowledge. That's what John is saying. Jesus, I have a word from heaven, but mine is me mediated. God has to reveal it to me. I'm merely a conduit, but Jesus is actually from there. As a pastor, I really feel the weight of John's argument here, you know? I felt it as I was studying the text this week. I stand up here week in and week out, and I hold out the word of heaven to you, not just in preaching, but also in teaching and private counseling. I hold out God's word, and I try to help you see and savor the word of heaven. But the sad fact is that I, like John the Baptist, am of this earth, which means that at my very best, I still speak in an earthly way. I'm still beset by sin and weakness. I'm limited in a thousand different capacities. I cannot tell you the things of God from firsthand experience, even though I try my very best to listen to Jesus carefully and to convey to you what I hear from him in his word.
Friends, uh, before moving on to the third point, I just want to remind us what a precious gift it is that even though the word that we receive today is mediated to us, we do have God's word. We have it. It's right here. I know we ignore it, and we should be convicted by that. We are guilty of it. We don't value God's word like we should. We don't seek him like we should. We don't listen to his voice like we should. And it's available to us every single day. All we have to do is open it. And not only that, but we have the spirit of God living in us, which means that we actually have the ability to comprehend what we read. Listen, you don't have to have the spirit of God to open the Bible, read it, and understand what's being said in it. Anybody who can just kind of, you know, put a noun and a verb together can, can read the Bible and understand the content. I mean, we can read the Bible and actually hear God's voice in it. We can actually see Christ because his spirit is living in us and he opens our eyes to see him in his word. So, yeah, two things. One, be thankful, rejoice, praise the Lord that we have good translations. We have a thousand translations, not all of them good but most of them really good and we can hear from God and commune with God by his spirit through his word anytime we so please. So be thankful. Number two, yeah, be convicted. Let's all strive to seek the Lord more. Let's open up the scriptures that are available to us more. Let's find creative ways to be in the word more. Sean, I just struggle with reading. Download the audio Bible, you know, listen to it on the way to work or on the way home. Well, Sean, I just have trouble understanding what I'm reading. Well, come to Wednesday nights. It's like, if you want to learn how to read your Bible better, Will stands up here every Wednesday and teaches you how to do that. It's fantastic. Well, Sean, I don't know. I still just don't get it. I feel like I need one-on-one help. I guarantee you there are five people in this church who would be willing to disciple you, to help you learn how to read God's Word. Well, Sean, I've tried and I've struggled and I haven't really found just the right person. Well, I'm sure that's true. It's hard to find just the right person. But I bet you there is a brother in Christ here, a sister in Christ here, who will love you and serve you and help you better understand God's word, which is available to you in the scriptures. And then maybe one final encouragement before we move on to point number three. One day, none of this will matter. One day, we won't need to have God's word mediated to us. We won't need the good gift of teachers and preachers in the church. One day we will no longer need to be discipled because we will be with the word. We'll be with Jesus in heaven forever. We won't understand everything because we're not God, right? That's what it means to be God. You understand everything perfectly. But we will grow forever and ever in heaven in our understanding of all the things that really matter. That's the day to look forward to. Point number three, who he is. John will not be competitive with Jesus because Jesus will increase and Jesus will increase because of who he is. That's the third argument that John the Baptist gives his disciples in this morning's sermon. Excuse me, in this morning's text. Look at verse 35. The father loves the son And has given all things into his hands. The father loves the son so much he gives him everything. Just think about a king gifting his entire kingdom to his son, the prince. That's what John is saying the father has done with Jesus. He's given him everything. Is there an exception to that? No. But what about no? There is no exception. There is Go back to John chapter 1, verse 3 real quick. John chapter 1, verse 3. You have a conversation with, you know, Mormons or Jehovah's Witness about Jesus and whether he was created or if he is truly God, of truly God. You go to chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him. That's Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. And you have a conversation and you say, you see what this says? It says that he made everything and nothing was made without him, so he can't possibly be a created being. Well, it's it's the same kind of all-encompassing universal language here. All things, without exclusion, every last single solitary thing has been given to Jesus. All kings 
and rulers, all political powers, nations and armies, art forms and mediums, movements and revolutions, plants and animals, celestial bodies, every law of nature, every power and principality, angel and demon, all judgment belongs to King Jesus. All honor, all glory, and all praise. Why? Because from him and through him and to him are all things. Amen? John the Baptist knows that Jesus is the high king of heaven and earth. And so he won't engage in any kind of competition with him. And he wants his disciples to get this. Which means that I want you to get this. Which means that I want me to get this. Jesus is Lord. And that means something for your life. It means something for the life of every single person in this room. For those who belong to Jesus, it means that the posture of your life must be that of ever decreasing. It means always seeking out the words of Jesus. Right? Right here. Always seeking out the words of Jesus and then submitting yourself to them in love instead of competing with them. It means bowing the knee to Jesus in every area of your life. Your marriage your finances, your faith, your bodies, whatever it is, everything, every aspect of your life. It means that when you evangelize, disciple, and counsel one another, you should strive to reduce your earthly speech and to maximize your heavenly speech. As much as possible, you should just say, uh, let me just say what Jesus says. I find myself being the worst pastor Whenever I just, I'm, I'm catching myself just rambling on, I'm giving a bunch of Sean's thoughts and Sean's ideas. And then I find myself being the best pastor when I go, turn with me to wherever. And I find the same thing is true of me as a husband. And the same thing is true of me as a father. And the same thing is true of me as a friend and a fellow church member. Which means the same thing is true of you. Try to reduce your earthly speech and just give people the good stuff. Your opinion's kind of worthless. Jesus' opinion matters immensely. It means that we should live in complete dependence on the Spirit of God because it is only the Spirit of God that can empower us to communicate the Word of God. For those of you who are here this morning and aren't quite sure if you belong to Jesus... Or maybe you're here this morning and you're quite sure that you do not belong to Jesus. I want you to know that the lordship of Jesus Christ means something for you as well, whether you realize it or not, whether you agree with it or not, whether you will admit to it or not. Look at verse 36 of this morning's text. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Uh, sometimes I read certain authors, and I am just amazed at what they can do with words, particularly the English language, right? Like, they can string together sentences and parse out ideas in a way that dazzles the mind and sets fire to the soul. And I read some of their stuff and I say to myself, man, if only I could communicate like that, right? And then I come to a text like, like verse 36 that we just read. And it's so simple. It's so plain. There's no frills. There's no creativity it's just a blood-earnest declaration about the fate of our souls. You either believe in Jesus and live, or you reject Jesus and you die and suffer the wrath of God. Friends, I know that this morning's sermon has been a little headier than usual, a bit more academic, trying to understand the Spirit without measure and the Trinity and all that stuff, but it doesn't get any simpler than this. Will you accept the word from heaven? Or will you reject it? Look back at verse 32. He, that's Jesus, 
bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Now, uh, John can't literally mean here no one because in the very next verse, like just, just keep going into verse 33, it says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. So John doesn't mean literally no one. He means by and large, the world rejects Jesus' word from heaven. The world has rejected Christ in what he says about God and what God wants from us as his creation. Do I have to prove that point this morning? Is that a hard sell that that the world has rejected Christ and his word from heaven? It, It shouldn't be, right? I mean, just turn on the TV or I guess if you're under 30, right, open your phone, just scroll through social media just for a few minutes, pull up your iTunes or Spotify app, listen to the top 100 chart, you can see. Christ has been utterly rejected by this world. We saw that earlier, right? This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. The people of this world have fallen in love with the petty pleasures of this place and have chosen those things over the glory of God. But God has been very kind. And he has given us the gift of salvation and he is opening the eyes of some, not all, not even many. You know, the road is narrow. But he has allowed some people to hear the word of Jesus and to receive his testimony. That's what you see in verse 33. Look back there. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. What does it mean to set your seal to something? Well, we don't really do this these days, but in the ancient world, you know, if the king would like issue an edict, he would put it on a scroll and they would roll the scroll up and he would have some hot wax and they'd drip it on the edge of the scroll and they would close it and then he would take his signet ring, his, you know, his kingly ring, like think about like an Alabama football ring, right? But for a king. And he would take that and he would press his seal into the hot wax and that would be like a a verification of authenticity. John says, if you believe Jesus, you set your seal to his gospel. You say, I believe it. I think it's true. I think he really is from heaven. He really is God. He really is telling me the way of salvation. So will you set your seal to Christ's word this morning? Will you declare God to be true today? Or will you reject his word and call his son a liar? One theologian has said that we cannot offer a greater insult to God than to not believe the word of his son. And friend, let me assure you, you are in no position to insult the high king of heaven regarding his son, especially in light of how merciful he has been to you in his son, especially in light of the cost of his son's life in order to give you life. So before we move on and kind of close the sermon, let me just make sure that we're all on the same page about what this word from heaven is. What is it that Jesus is coming down and telling us? What is he bearing witness to? What is it that you must receive in order to live? Well, it's this, that God has created this world and he created everything good. He created it for his glory. But sin came in and ruined it. Our father Adam was the first one, but then we have all followed in his footsteps. And we have chosen to reject God and to reject his love and to reject his glory and to cling to the worthless, broken things of this fallen world. But God is so good. He's so loving. He is so kind that he said that our sin would not be the last word on the matter. This whole book is, really the first three quarters of this book is just God making all kinds of promises saying, don't worry, I'm gonna fix this. And then we see 
In John 1, the word becomes flesh. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. God actually keeps his word. He doesn't renege on his promises. When he comes to fix everything, he doesn't just send one of his peons. He sends his son. God comes down to us in the flesh. And in order to save us, he had to give up his life. And so he did. He went to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sins that we could never pay. We've rehearsed this, but you know the deal. Sin requires death. The penalty of sin is death. And not just like your physical death, but your eternal death. Your eternal separation from God. That's a price you can't pay. It's a price you don't want to pay. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of the death that he died in our place, it's a price that you don't have to pay if you will just turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus. And this is the gospel that Jesus preached when he was on the earth. He said, hey, I'm here. God is fixing everything, so turn away from your sin and believe in me. And then he did everything that he did, and he resurrected, and he ascended to glory, and then he sent out his people, his apostles. He commissioned his church with this gospel message. And 2,000 years after all that happened, I am standing here today telling you the same truth. I'm reverberating that truth from heaven that God has made a way through his son for you to live. This is the word of heaven. This is the word of God. So set your seal to this this morning. Say amen to this. Receive this word and give God the glory. Let's pray. Father, left to ourselves, we can believe nothing. The only thing that we can have is that which we receive from heaven. So God, we pray that you would open our eyes, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, change our hearts, allow us to live, compel us, Lord, to flee from the wrath to come and to follow you faithfully until you call us home to be with you forever. Amen.